Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hey ModPod listeners, we made it through another year. Thanks so much for joining us on the journey. In this month's episode, we offer you three articles, two related to the posterior segment and one wild card, which I'll reveal to you later. Let's get right to it by learning firsthand about the OD's role in retina surgery. Here's Fraser McKay, an optometrist at Bennett and Bloom Eye Centers in Louisville, Kentucky, with some tips for co-managing patients following vitrectomy from the early post-operative period on. Optometrists provide an excellent post-operative management for a variety of ocular procedures, and thanks to recent advances in technique and technology, modern-day small-gauge vitrectomy has revolutionized retinal surgery. It provides a faster, less invasive, often sutureless procedure for a variety of vitro-retinal pathologies. We're going to examine the role that we can play in co-managing these patients in the days and weeks following a vitrectomy. Now, the term vitrectomy, in its basic sense, talks about removing the vitreous, which is typically accomplished with a vitrector. This small little specialized tool actually cuts and chews the vitreous into small little pieces and then before removing it from the eye. This vitrectomy is usually performed under monitored local anesthesia or retrobulbar anesthesia and can take anywhere from... 15 minutes if you're just removing floaters or a vitreous hemorrhage, or up to two hours if it's a really bad tractional retinal detachment, for instance. Three points of entry into the eye, called sclerotomies, enable the surgeon to illuminate the retina while performing the surgery. These incisions are actually performed through the pars plana, which is why it's called a pars plana vitrectomy. Every surgery, whether it's for your regular regimentogenous retinal detachment or even if it's a ruptured globe or intraocular foreign body, are generally going to start with removing the vitreous. By removing the vitreous, you ensure that further manipulation while you're inside the globe is less or is less likely to cause any, you know, self-induced retinal breaks through the inadvertent vitreous traction. Once the retina is reattached or the membrane is peeled or whatever it is that we are doing, uh, the vitreous cavity has to be filled with any number of materials. This can include gas or liquid or oil, depending on the type of material chosen. The vitrectomy for floaters or vitreous hemorrhage is generally going to require an air fluid exchange, which is more or less where we're putting sterile saline or a small air bubble inside of the eye. But some of the other more involved surgeries like a retinal detachment are going to require a tamponade with gas to eliminate this trans-hole fluid flow, which can restore the you know, trans-retinal pressure gradient, which is actually what keeps the retina attached. The exact composition of the gas varies from surgeon to surgeon and hospital to hospital, but it's usually a mixture of either SF6 or an air or C3F8 an air. Over time, the bubbles are going to be slowly reabsorbed into the bloodstream by the body, and the eye is going to replace that space with aqueous humor. An air bubble itself in the vitreous is generally going to last anywhere from four to five days, 
SF6 can take up to two weeks, and then C3F8 can last anywhere from eight to 12 weeks, which is important to remember when you're counseling these patients on, on their post-operative restrictions, specifically with the gas and when it involves air travel. Other materials such as silicone oil or perfluorocarbon are used in situations for uh, chronic inferior retinal detachments, repeat detachments, etc. You know, if they have PVR, for instance, you know, the perfluorocarbon is not supposed to stay inside the eye. Some surgeons use it intraoperatively to, to kind of flatten the, the retina for reasons that are beyond the scope of this article. But uh, some will leave it in the eye temporarily for a few weeks, but you do have to remove it because it's a pro-inflammatory material. Silicone oil, however, can be placed inside the eye and can be left safely inside of the eye for long term in order to prevent redetachments. Generally, a, a standard post-operative schedule for these patients is going to be days one and seven, and then a visit somewhere between weeks three and four. You know, usually the doctor doing the surgery or the doctor that's evaluated the uh, finding that required surgery is going to prescribe an antibiotic and a steroid. Usually your general fourth generation fluoroquinolone will be fine for a week, and then your steroids after the week, have four times a day, you can start to taper it with uh, you know a, a drop per week. Uh, vision is vision is going to vary at that first visit based on what was put back inside of the eye, so that's important to counsel the patients. If if they come in with a macula on retinal detachment, they're going to be count fingers, hand motion at, at that post-op vision day one because you can't see through. Not only can you not see through a bubble, but they can't see through the bubble either. If it's a vitrectomy for floaters or vitrectomy for a uh, uh, a vitreous hemorrhage, they generally are seeing pretty well as long as there's not an air bubble in the way. Inflammation and pain uh, on these patients are typically mild depending on the length of the surgery. If, you know, if they were in there for two hours, that, that person's not going to be very happy the next day. A small amounts of blood and, and sometimes gas are okay to be in the anterior chamber. Those typically go away on its own. Your exam itself when you're seeing the patient is going to be limited by what was put inside the eye. Uh, the, the fundoscopic view is going to be impacted by the internal reflections from gas or the gas-induced cataracts, which we call feathering. Um, because liquid or, or water or the silicone oil have similar indices of refraction to the vitreous, those will actually enable you to see fairly well. So you, that's one of the things that maybe you're not sure exactly what's inside the eye. If you can see through it, it, it chances are it's not a gas bubble. When I'm examining the patients, I like to have them look down. Specifically, I like to have them look down so that I can see the inferior meniscus of the gas. That's how I'm going to determine how full the eye is with gas. It's usually somewhere between 80 to 90% for most regimentogenous uh, retinal detachments. Uh, for for other surgeries like a MAC hole or uh, you know a vitreous hemorrhage, if they did decide to put a bubble in there, that bubble is usually not anywhere close to that 80 or 90 percent. And it's important to it's worth docu it's worth documenting what how full you think that that vitreous is because if you see them back later on, and we'll talk about this later on in in the discussion, if you see them back later on, their pressure is higher, and you think that that eye is now. Let's say now, for instance, you can't see the inferior meniscus. That would suggest that the gas expand is expanding, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. 
Post-operative head positioning is a key to success in certain situations. You know, the, the latest or the literature out there isn't, isn't as straightforward for full thickness macular holes as one might think. But head positioning for regular retinal detachment is, is pretty straightforward still. The position of the original retinal break, wherever that tear is that they think it started, it should be located at the uppermost location of the eye. You know, when they're inside of the eye, they're doing cryo or they're doing uh, argon laser to, to try and induce uh, scarring. That, that photocoagulation will usually take up to a month for new adhesions or new scars to form. So you really do need to help keep the retina in place. Typical positioning is going to be in a head down and slightly tilted to the opposite side of the retinal detachment during the waking hours or while they're awake. And I, we usually tell our patients to try to aim for 50 minutes out of the hour. So 10 minutes an hour, they can get up and, and move around or do other things. While they're sleeping, we try and have them sleep on the opposite side of the break at night. One of the purposes of this lecture or of this, this topic is to try and prepare you guys for what to do with with problems during complications. You know, managing post-operative patients is easy when there's no complications, but you know it's important to have a handle on what are some of the most common problems that you can see during a post-operative vitrectomy patient. So eye pressure is a big one. Uh, the gases that we use to fill the vitreous cavity can expand within the, the, within the eye. They mix them with air at the time to try and prevent them from expanding, but that doesn't always work. What's important to remember is most of the expansion of these gases is going to occur within the first three days of their of their procedure. And so once you've made it outside of that, well, it's not impossible. It's far less likely for the gas to be expanding and causing a problem. Keep a, a picture in your mind. These these gas expansions have a very characteristic appearance. And as the gas expands, the lens and the iris diaphragm kind of this that iris lens complex is going to move anteriorly their anterior chamber is going to shallow and and using a comparing between the affected eye and the non-affected eye is going to give you a good gauge as far as how shallow that anterior chamber is you know, in, in certain situations uh, the anterior chamber can completely can, can collapse completely and removing the gas will help remedy the pressure and will help remedy some of the solution. But if the actual uh, iris is collapsed into the anterior chamber, that's going to have to be fixed in the operating room. Most surgeons, uh, most of your retina surgeons should be comfortable removing some of the gas in the office if there's a problem. So if, if you have pressure spiking and the anterior chamber hasn't quite collapsed and you see that it's moving anteriorly, sending them back quickly is usually going to rectify the solution because that surgeon usually can just take some of the gas outside of the, out of the eye in the office. When you have a elevated eye pressure without 100% gas fill, that's where you really have to start uh, thinking outside the box here. So remember, when you're examining the patient, you want them to look down so that you can see that inferior meniscus. And if that eye pressure is high, that chamber is not shallow, and you look down and you can see that it's not a full fill, you have to start thinking other causes of eye pressure. And I can tell you, a steroid response in a vitrectomy patient is, is far more common than you might think, and it can be quite aggressive, actually. You know, it's usually going to show up somewhere between day six and day seven. As long as you identify it and catch it, stopping that steroid quicker is, is the best way to treat that. Yes, obviously, I want you, you know, you should put topical 
uh, hypotensive medicine on there, but cutting the steroid quicker than maybe what you anticipated is really the treatment. You know, after we, after I wrote this article, actually, I had a very interesting scenario just the other day where my one day vitrectomy post-op came in and she had a, a pressure of 70 and chamber is shallow. And I'm, it's, it's very confusing because I'm looking, I know what surgery she had. It was a membrane peel. There should be no, it shouldn't be full fill. I can see the inferior meniscus and the gut, you know, and you're looking and you're going, what the heck is going on? And this lady by sheer bad luck had developed acute angle closure that evening after she recovered from her um, vitrectomy surgery. And so well, thankfully with you know, being diligent with my exam and diligent with gonioscopy, we're able to, to fix her in the office in the great state of Kentucky. I'm allowed to do laser procedures. So we were able to give her a PI that morning and the next day her pressure was six, but it's just a good highlight of, you never know what's going to happen when these patients walk in sometimes. Having a low eye pressure at day one usually requires you to pay extra close attention to the sclerotomies or, or the areas of incision. You'll really want to make sure that you're that there's no leakage. Uh, choroidal effusions are, can occur with or without a leakage, so the choroidal effusion doesn't necessarily guarantee that there, it's leaking. But if you have low eye pressure, you really want to make sure because if there's an open or a leaking sclerotomy, that's got to be sent back to the operating room very quickly. It can't. I, I don't imagine any surgeon is going to want to try and suture that in the office. Pain, you know, we talked about a vitrectomy being a fairly painless surgery, and, and I stand by that. It's really not a painful procedure for most patients. And so when someone comes in complaining of pain, it really raises a red flag, or you should really start looking into why, uh, what, what's the cause of that pain. Uh, the I, in my personal opinion, the most common cause of pain postoperatively is going to be irritation from the sutures. You know, we talked about how most of the vitrectomies can be sutureless. Well, if they're in there for a long time, or if the, you know, the surgeon can't quite get the sclerotomy to close when they're finished, they might have to put in a small bicral suture at each uh, opening. And and these bicral sutures sometimes can be very very painful. Now you'll know it's a bicral suture because it's purple, and if if they're if the you know the bunny ears of the suture are kind of poking out a little bit, what they're going to do is they're just going to irritate the the inside of the eyelid beyond all get out, and that person is going to be writhing in pain. You know, a, a gentle digital inspection, just kind of running your finger over that area of the eyelid, and and asking if that's where the pain is usually confirms that that's where the the problem is. These sutures can be removed after day four, day five in the office. Uh, this is something that, that that we can do as, as as clinicians as long as you're, you know, I would always suggest discussing it with your surgeon and what your surgeon is comfortable with you you doing. But in my clinic, this is something that I'm going to take out after after they've been in there for a few days because the suture is really not doing much. Now, a few pointers with removing the suture um, Preparacaine and lidocaine are great anesthetics for the cornea. They are not great anesthetics for the conjunctiva. And this suture is, is a deep suture. And so you really want to give them some extra anesthesia when you're going to remove that. I like, uh, I like ophthalmic lidocaine gel is what I typically use in my clinic. And I just take a, you know, just kind of put a little glob of it right over top of the suture and leave it there for a few minutes. And then you should be in good shape to, to take your Westcott's or your Vanna scissors and, and kind of cut that suture and pull it out. Again, the suture, the vicral suture is a dissolvable suture. It's going to go away after 
four to six weeks. And so if it's not bothering the patient or if they think they can tolerate it, you don't have to do anything. It's going to go away on its own. But when that person comes back to see you the week later and is in extreme pain, look for the sutures as one of the main causes. Obviously, with the purpose of most vitrectomies being to fix a retinal detachment, one of the things we have to be paying close attention to is a redetachment. Unfortunately, even in the best hands of surgeons, the redetachment rate is estimated to occur somewhere between 10 and 20%. That's one of the obvious reasons why you want to dilate these patients at every visit. Um, The best way or the most important thing to do when, when you're examining these patients is look inferiorly because that's typically where the detachment is going to start. Remember, the gas is rising. The inferior retina is going to be the first one that is not held on by the tamponade. And so having them look down, you should be able to see the inferior part of the retina. The If you find yourself having a difficult view because of the internal reflections or because the meniscus, the cheat is actually to recline the patient in the chair, just like you were doing, going to do a scleral depression. Because when you recline them, the the gas interface becomes uniform with the iris lens diaphragm, and, and you can actually see quite a bit easier. So if you're on the fence about what it is that you're looking at, throw on your BIO, have them lay flat, and you'll get a much, much better view. A long-term, long-term prognosis for these patients is relatively good. Now, those who undergo a vitrectomy rarely have lasting complications. Uh, phakic patients are uh, almost always going to develop a visually significant cataract, usually within the first couple months. And so when you're talking about patients about like it's, you know, I, there's been some discussion out there about doing vitrectomies for floaters. I'm a big fan of vitrectomies for floaters, but in those phakic patients, you really want to counsel them appropriately because they need to know that they're going to be back in your chair six, nine months later talking about cataracts. When you are sending that person for their cataract surgery, make sure you communicate with the anterior segment surgeon or the cataract surgeon that they've had a vitrectomy because sometimes that's going to change their, 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 their surgical plan. If it's an eye that has silicone oil, one of the things that you have to be worried about is an emulsification of the silicone oil. So silicone oil can break down due to friction inside of the eye. And when the silicone oil becomes emulsified, it forms these little tiny droplets. And the little tiny droplets almost, they're bigger than cells. So that's why you know it's not inflammation and the eye is, is typically quiet. But if this emulsificated oil move, migrates into the anterior chamber because the specific gravity is different than that, out of the aqueous humor, they're going to float. And so they give rise to this very characteristic, I'm sure everybody has seen this, this very characteristic appearance of a, a reverse hypopian. You know, a small reverse hypopian is really not going to make a big deal if the amount of material in the anterior chamber starts to accumulate. What it'll do, unfortunately, is it can block the trabecular meshwork. And of course, we all know what that'll do. That's going to cause that patient's eye pressure to go high. Uh, really, the only thing to do in that situation is to have somebody remove the oil, which uh, puts them in a predicament because the oil was left in there for a very specific reason, probably because they were worried the retina was going to come off again. Overall, kind of knowing what to expect post-vitrectomy will will not only allow you to feel more confident and and comfortable in in caring for the patients, but it's also going to give you the confidence in communicating these these post-surgical expectations to them. It's going to enable you to, to see the signs and symptoms that aren't typical of your natural uh, or your normal post-vitrectomy patient. 
you know, being able to spot these complications and, and acting early is generally going to save their sight in most situations. And as vitreal retinal surgery continues to advance, I really would encourage you to, you know, consider working alongside our retina specialist colleagues and in, in helping to co-manage these patients as we move forward. What did you think? Was there one particular tip you found most helpful? Let us know. That applies if you have questions. Email me at kroman, that's K-R-O-M-A-N, at bmctoday.com, and I'll pass your message along to the author. Ready to hear our next article? Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Okay, we're back. And next up, we have Taya Delano, an assistant professor of professional practice at the University of Missouri. Dr. Delano will explain how using PRISM can redirect how light hits the retina and improves visual function. Many patients with low vision make appointments with us hoping we'll be able to improve their vision. Although we are rarely able to change their vision, we can alter their environment and give the illusion of improved vision. Magnifiers can enlarge close-up text. High-plus lenses can allow a closer working distance by using relative distance magnification. And tinted lenses can increase contrast. But sometimes, even our most successful, low-vision tips and tricks can leave a patient struggling. However, thinking outside the box and taking the time to listen to your patients can allow a sort of magic to happen. PRISM is typically used to alleviate double vision. Less commonly, it can also ease nystagmus, improve behavior, and reduce the effect of hemianopsia. In other cases, just as a magician turns an audience's focus away from the real action, yoked prism can be used to redirect a patient's visual world so they miss the illusion right in front of their eyes. A 52-year-old woman presented to the low vision clinic after recent vision loss in her better-seeing right eye. Despite her long-standing struggle with pathologic myopia in both eyes and a choroidal neovascular membrane that left her left eye with 2400 vision, she had been able to continue to work as a nurse for years. In the fall of 2021, however, she experienced a non-arteritic ischemic optic neuropathy in her right eye which resulted in further deterioration of her central vision and a dense inferior altitudinal scotoma. To help her keep working, we first trialed computer-only lenses, clip-on magnifiers, and computer programs such as ZoomText that enabled detailed magnification. Even with these recommended visual aids, however, she struggled to see well enough to perform her daily tasks. Although her central blur was bothersome, it became apparent that the inferior scotoma was causing the biggest problem. Not only was she unable to track words as her eyes moved lower down on the computer screen, but she also found herself manipulating her neck to see around the scotoma. 
We then decided to try a prism to redirect her visual world instead. Prism is used to redirect an image's apparent location in space, where the image shifts in the direction of the apex or the pointy part of the lens. For example, with base out prism, the base of the lens is aligned with the temporal aspect of the eye, and the perceived image is shifted towards the patient's nose. This setup can be used to correct esotropia, or double vision stemming from an inward turned eye. Prism used in this manner can be placed over the involved eye, or more commonly, divided between the two eyes. The opposite is true for treatment of exotropia, or an outward turned eye, which requires base in prism over each eye. Vertical prism to alleviate double vision has the base situated opposite each other. That is, base up is used over one eye and base down over the fellow eye. If you consider double vision that is situated one above the other, base up of equal amounts over each eye would not alter the position of the images relative to each other as desired. Instead, it would cause the image for each eye to shift downward by an equal amount but remain an equal distance apart. For this reason, if you want to align the image that is separated vertically between the two eyes, you need base up in one eye and base down in the fellow eye, with the base down situated over the hyper eye. For example, if the right eye is sitting higher or hyper compared with the left eye, then the image of the right eye is likely lower than the image in the left eye. To move the right image upward to align with that of the left eye, you would need base down prism over the right eye. Conversely, instead of moving the image of the right eye upward, you could move the image of the left eye downward with base up prism. Or more conventionally, you could divide the amount and separate it over each eye. Although this may be a review for most ODs, it is important to understand the basics before delving into yoked prism. Because prism is typically used when the posture of the eyes is misaligned, it is easy to think that the prism realigns the eyes. This is not the case, and this is why an eye turn may cosmetically appear worse when wearing prism. Rather than thinking of prism as a way to realign the eyes, it is more accurate to imagine the eyes sitting in their natural posture with the prism working to move the visual world to meet the eye rather than the reverse. Consider the vertical double vision we discussed. If you placed base up lenses over each eye, what would you expect? This is the concept of yoked prism. And as explained, this type of prism would simply shift both images down rather than closer together. Although individuals with double vision do not typically benefit from yoked prism, the idea of two separate images shifting in unison allows easier understanding of the concept. For those with hemianopsia or scotoma, the visual shift of a single image rather than the sinking of a double image is generally the goal. Like any good magic trick, it's the illusion rather than the reality is the key. Such is the case with yoked prism. Although it is impossible to change the location of a non-moving object in space, it is possible to change the perception of its location. It is understood that prism shifts the visual world one centimeter for each one prism diopter when an object is located one meter away. 
And as noted, vertical prism of equal amounts oriented in the same direction, as in either both A's up or both base down, creates a movement of an object's apparent position in space. Therefore, for a patient with an inferior scotoma, base down prism over each eye shifted her visual world upward, creating the illusion that the scotoma had shifted downward out of her line of sight. For prescribing, the amount of prism necessary is directly proportional to the degree of shift you desire and can be easily trialed with a patient in office. For our patient, a shift of 10 prism diopters, or about 10 centimeters, moved her visual world up far enough to allow her to continue to work comfortably. Now you may think the eyes would simply follow the image shift, and therefore the scotoma would too. However, this is not the case. When prism is oriented in a symmetrical vertical direction with equal power, the eyes themselves do not move. They do not know to move. And instead, they remain fixated forward while the image moves. Although there is some debate regarding the phenomenon of yoked prism adaptation and foveal refixation in full-time wear, such problems are unlikely to interfere when used only in certain situations, such as when the eye is undergoing numerous refixations, as it does while reading or while using the computer. In addition to the possibility of adaptation, yoked prism should not be used full-time because doing so can make it difficult to properly navigate spaces. If your patient is already worried about climbing the stairs with their progressive lenses, for example, imagine their difficulty wearing glasses that shift their visual world 10 centimeters higher than reality. Although our case example demonstrates yoked prism in a vertical direction, horizontal prism can be used in this manner as well, such as for a patient with a left hemianopsia. Base left, or a prism situated with base out over the left eye and base in over the right eye, which shift the missing left visual world to the right, into the patient's line of sight. Using a yoked prism may require some time on the patient's part to adjust, but with the right motivation, you can use the power of redirection to help your patient experience an almost magical visual improvement. Great piece by Dr. Delano. That case really demonstrates the value of using prism to offer patients with certain conditions some degree of visual improvement. That's the last of our retina content for this episode. Our next and last article is on a completely different topic. I care for pregnant and postpartum patients. Let's hear what Noreen Haroon, Director of Accreditation and Preclinical Optometry at the University of Detroit Mercy has to say on the subject. Women undergo tremendous physiological changes during the nine months of pregnancy and the following postpartum period. Abnormal stress is placed on the body, which can result in eye and vision-related changes. Optometrists need to carefully manage any pre-existing ocular and systemic conditions patients may suffer from during this period. The postpartum phase results in substantial immune changes in the body, often triggering a new onset or exacerbation of autoimmune diseases. In this segment, I will detail the eye-related pregnancy and postpartum conditions and complications that can arise in expecting mothers. A normal pregnancy is associated with remarkable changes to the immune and endocrine systems, enabling the development and survival of the placenta and fetus. A full-term pregnancy lasts between 39 weeks of gestation through 40 weeks of gestation, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or the ACOG. 
These weeks are grouped into three trimesters. The fourth trimester is the unofficial name given to the postpartum period when the mother's physiological changes return to their non-pregnant state. The ACOG considers postpartum up to 12 weeks after birth. However, because the body doesn't always return to baseline at this time, the postpartum period can last up to 12 months after birth. After delivery, there is an abrupt estrogen and progesterone withdrawal, while prolactin levels remain high. Women may undergo vision changes throughout pregnancy and into the postpartum period. These changes are usually mild and temporary myopic changes that resolve after the body returns to its pre-pregnancy state. This could be due to pregnancy-related fluid retention, which causes an increase in corneal curvature during the second and third trimesters. This edema tends to resolve after delivery or with the cessation of breastfeeding. Because of this, optometrists should advise waiting eight weeks postpartum to obtain a new spectacle or contact lens prescription. Providers should manage pregnant patients with hyperopic shifts due to uncontrolled diabetes, similarly to other diabetic patients. These patients should be given a prescription, if necessary, for optimal vision, but they should also be cautioned that their vision and prescription will continue to change as glycemic levels fluctuate. Pregnant patients commonly have dry eye syndrome and contact lens intolerance. Tear production tends to decrease with pregnancy, which results in dry eye syndrome. Altered tear composition, increased corneal thickness, and increased corneal curvature may all be causes of contact lens intolerance in our pregnant and postpartum patients. During pregnancy, an increase in estrogen and progesterone is believed to cause an increase in melanin, which often results in increased pigmentation or dark patches on the skin and around the eyes known as melasma. Chronic non-infectious uveitis doesn't usually flare up during pregnancy. This may be due to heightened immune suppression. When flare-ups do occur, though, they typically happen during the first trimester and rebound within the first six months postpartum. Due to the potential teratogenic and adverse effects of many immunosuppressive agents, providers must take precautions when treating pregnant and breastfeeding patients. Short-acting topical corticosteroids are an ideal initial approach to reduce the risk of potential harm to the mother and fetus. Central serous chorioretinopathy, or CSCR, should be a differential for pregnant patients complaining of decreased vision, a central scotoma, or metamorphopsia. Although it is 10 times more common in men, pregnant women run a strong risk for CSCR, especially during the third trimester. During pregnancy, it often presents as an RPE detachment with surrounding subretinal exudates. The primary etiology of CSCR is unknown. However, hemodynamic and hormonal changes, as well as increased endogenous corticosteroid levels, all may play a role in CSCR during pregnancy. In most cases, CSCR is self-limiting and vision tends to resolve within a few months. Percher-like retinopathy, or Percher retinopathy without the associated trauma, has been seen in the immediate postpartum period. It's also associated with preeclampsia, amniotic, fluid emboli, and hypercoagulability. These symptoms most often present a sudden and severe bilateral vision loss shortly after delivery. A fundus examination usually reveals multiple cotton wool spots with or without intraretinal hemorrhage. The retinal changes and vision tend to resolve spontaneously. Other occlusive vascular disorders, such as arterial and vein occlusions, have been reported during pregnancy but are less common.
Toxoplasma gondii can easily pass to the fetus through the placenta if a mother acquires the infection during pregnancy. The passage is easier as the placenta matures, so the risk of fetal infection increases each trimester, with a rate increasing from 25% to 65%. Central nervous system involvement and life-threatening fetal complications can occur with congenital toxoplasmosis, so it's important to take caution and provide proper treatment. For mothers with latent ocular toxoplasmosis, reactivation can occur during pregnancy. However, fetal infection is uncommon. Diabetic patients who become pregnant greatly increase their risk of developing diabetic retinopathy, or DR. For those patients who already have DR, their risk of progression increases drastically. For this reason, patients with diabetes should receive a baseline ophthalmic examination before becoming pregnant, if possible, and during the first trimester of their pregnancy. DR that occurs during pregnancy tends to spontaneously regress after delivery. However, women remain at risk for DR progression up to one year postpartum. Optometrists should manage patients with proliferative diabetic retinopathy or clinically significant macular edema just as they manage non-pregnant patients. Gestational diabetes is not a risk factor for diabetic retinopathy. However, it can cause various complications in mothers. Preeclampsia occurs when a pregnant woman is hypertensive and has high levels of protein in her urine. It typically develops after week 20 of pregnancy and can be a serious and fatal complication if not managed immediately. Eclampsia occurs when a preeclamptic patient has seizures. Signs of preeclampsia include headaches, blurry vision, light sensitivity, or dark spots in the vision. Retinal changes are similar to those seen in hypertensive retinopathy, including diffuse retinal edema, hemorrhages, exudates, and cotton wool spots. The earliest retinal changes seen are focal arteriolar spasms, which occur in 50% to 100% of preeclamptic patients. Exudative retinal detachment is seen in 1% of preeclamptic patients and 10% of eclamptic patients. It is essential for eye care providers to recognize these signs in their pregnant and postpartum patients because preeclampsia can sometimes occur even after delivery. Considerable changes occur in the immune and endocrine system during pregnancy to allow for the development of the placenta and fetus. During these nine months, thyroid disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and multiple sclerosis tend to ameliorate, while lupus, myasthenia gravis, and inflammatory bowel disease worsen. After childbirth, there is an abrupt estrogen and progesterone withdrawal and high levels of prolactin for breastfeeding mothers. The postpartum body again undergoes substantial immune changes that can result in new onset or, or exacerbation of autoimmune diseases. The postpartum period has a negative effect on all autoimmune diseases, worsening symptoms, so providers should place special attention on the ocular manifestations during the postpartum period. We must be cautious when prescribing any medication to our pregnant and breastfeeding patients. Regardless of the pregnancy category, it is best to prescribe a minimal concentration and dose of the medication to limit systemic absorption and toxicity. To further limit systemic absorption, punctal occlusion should be performed for two minutes. Often, our pregnant and breastfeeding patients are rushed in and out of the office after a fraction and an undilated examination. We refrain from using medicated drops and assume that a spectacle or contact lens prescription is the best that we can offer them during this sensitive time. However, with the substantial changes their bodies are undergoing, these patients may be struggling with a variety of ocular and visual conditions. 
Most often, ocular complications during this time are mild, transient, and require little to no treatment. Be that as it may, serious and life-threatening conditions can occur, and we must recognize these changes as healthcare providers. anything from Dr. Haroon's guide to identifying eye and vision related changes in pregnant and postpartum patients? What was your top takeaway from this episode? We hope you find the Mod Pod to be equal parts informative and enjoyable. We'll return in the new year and we plan to kick things up a notch by introducing a new format style every other month. That's all for now. Be safe and enjoy the holidays. Until next year, be well.